Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Two major international dramas this week. Uh, In the first one, Al-Qaeda leader Al-Zawahiri was killed by a U.S. Hellfire missile fired from a drone. And that has Al-Qaeda promising revenge. And uh, if you follow the international scene, you start to wonder whether Al-Qaeda and Iran might work together because Iran is still furious at uh, the Americans for killing their Al-Quds general. So could that happen? Um, China is engaged in uh, war games after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, driving Beijing wild. So China is involved in war games, both off the coast of Taiwan, while simultaneously encroaching on Taiwanese territory. So how far might China go? Nobody knows. How dangerous are both of these scenarios, and how do major nation intelligence organizations prepare and engage? And uh, then there's the Russian continued assault on Ukraine. Would China assist Russia? There's been some talk about that being a possibility, as the Russians are five months into their invasion. They're still being held up and even pushed back by Ukraine's military, what actions might Putin order? So I'm just curious about how the intelligence agencies work. You know, we talk about all the news developments. We talk to the to the newsmakers and the people who are the great observers of what's going on in the world. But how do the people, you know, behind the curtain work, the intelligence people? Professor Christian Luprecht joins us, professor at both Queen's University and the Royal Military College, a senior fellow at the NATO War College in Rome, a military and national intelligence expert. He testifies frequently before parliamentary committees. His book is Intelligence, many books. This one is Intelligence as National Statecraft, and it's published by Oxford Press, Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you very much uh, for for joining us on the program. Um, let me let me start with this. How does how does how do intelligence agencies work cooperatively uh, internationally? You've got these situations now. Uh, you've got Al Qaeda. You've got uh, Beijing. You've got Russia, Ukraine. What's how do the internal workings operate? Well, they often don't work very well. That's what we learned with nine eleven. Uh, that there was awareness of uh, a serious risk, but there were serious coordination challenges, as the 9-11 Commission found, and there was an inability to translate the intelligence that was provided uh, into uh, operational decision-making. And that's a matter of both how you then turn intelligence, um, uh, the intelligence that you collect into Uh, and the analysis into an actionable product, but it's also a matter of political decision-making because in democracies, of course, ultimately, especially when it comes to what is effectively an extrajudicial killing, as we do in the case of uh, al-Zwahiri, you need political decision-making um, on um, on these matters. But there's a lot that we've learned since 9-11 in terms of bridging some of the gaps uh, among and between agencies. But it's important to understand, of course, in democracies, We always need to make sure that we operate uh, and live by the, when it comes to the intelligence business, to the same rules that we purport to defend. And we all know that Western intelligence agencies have had um, some challenges um, around that, and so that uh, accountability and governance um, very much matters. So this is not the agencies themselves making decisions, but the agencies themselves 
getting direction onto what to focus on and then being able to provide that intelligence to higher decision-making authorities to decide what sort of action is ultimately appropriate because it's ultimately those in a democracy, that is to say the, the elected officials, that ultimately can be held to account for both the strategic direction they provided to intelligence agencies and then for operational um, operational okay. decisions. So we don't, we don't have James Bond driving around the world in an Aston Martin saving everything. Uh, no, and that's very really <laughs> critical. And I think there's it's it, it's an important distinction. I mean, the reason why basically countries keep intelligence agencies is uh, is two purposes. One is sort of the domain awareness, um, in particular about adversarial activities, but sort of national interest activities. And a few countries keep them effectively to engage um, in sort of decapitation efforts, as we saw with Al Swahiri. Right. This is not a game in which most countries play. For instance, Canada does not play in that game, but of course the United States does and some of the other superpowers who feel that is, is within their national interest and their remit uh, to, uh, to do so. So because we don't play in that game, that takes out a, a for Canada uh, a substantial sort of issue on the accountability and okay. governance side because the moment you get engaged in, uh, in, in extrajudicial state killings, uh, you might imagine that obviously has serious legal impercussions but also potential political repercussions. So when it comes to the location of or the locating and the killing of al-Zawahiri, the al-Qaeda leader, does that in any way then speak to any cooperative international intelligence agencies, or was it purely a U.S. endeavor? So this was a, uh, would have been a U.S. endeavor with some, possibly some assistance from some key allies from within the Five Eyes community, that is to say the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and Canada. Uh, but the United States is really the, the, the gorilla, the 800-pound gorilla in this game, because the United States has intelligence assets that simply no one else in the world can match, not in terms of uh, the budgets, the people, the technological capabilities uh, that uh, the United States is bring to can bring to bear, so, but that can also be a hindrance, as we saw with 9/11, because when you have so many large agencies, each one of which is larger than the entire intelligence community in Canada put together, yeah. um, then inherently you're bound to get coordination issues, and you're bound to get sort of silos, and you're bound to get into power issues and power struggles uh, among agencies. And uh, we know, for instance, some of the um, certainly the beginning of the of the Trump administration, some of the frustrations with the CIA that sort of spilled over rightly or wrongly into uh, into the public. And we also know that intelligence agencies can be instrumentalized for political purposes, okay. um, in, as we sometimes see in the United States. So uh, for the person who is not initiated into this into this life, into this reality, which is most of us, uh, but we're fascinated by it. When you, when you talk about the capabilities of the, of, of the U.S. intelligence agencies, what are they capable of? What, 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 what can they do? I guess one of the questions we were asking was, what now? How does the intelligence community, or is it just the United States, keeping tabs on al-Qaeda for possible retaliatory strikes? How do they keep tabs on the possibility, if it exists, of an al-Qaeda alliance of convenience for a short period of time? To, with Iran to, to uh, you know, achieve their mutual objectives of revenge on the United States. How is that, how is that done? Or is, it, or is that not happening at all? 
This is a terrific question because, of course, it, it, it speaks to the importance of intelligence, especially post-World War II, where the United States realized that the entire globe is in the U.S.'s national interest. And the failure of having made the entire world the U.S.'s national interest in part brought on the calamities of the first half of the 20th century. So this is partially about never again, but also never again in terms of the humanitarian disaster, but also never again in terms of uh, that sort of disaster in terms of U.S. national interests and the expenditure of, of blood and treasure in order to reassert those interests. And so the United States really is interested in everything that happens across the globe and so has built capabilities to be able to track that. But so really has the intelligence business after, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War in, um, in most other countries, because all of a sudden threats were more permanent threats. They were ideologically based. Then we saw in the 60s and 70s domestic terrorism. Then we saw sort of the advent of, uh, uh, of broader transnational terrorism and sort of uh, then ideological movements, including terrorist movements on the left and right, sort of in the, at the beginning of the 21st century. Plus, of course, the standard adversarial sort of capabilities of trying to, uh, in this case, not just play in the spy game, but engage in economic spying, but also now, of course, in democratic interference, in influence in our institutions. Um, and so there became this need to essentially have permanent intelligence agencies, uh, which countries didn't used to have. And so uh, the United States, uh, Canada and allies built these agencies, but then we've had a bit of a lag effect in making sure that these agencies are also effectively accountable to uh, the democratic uh, decision makers. And so trying to make sure yeah. we keep them calibrated relative to a threat environment, but at the same time, uh, govern them and keep them accountable effectively, that can sometimes be uh, a challenge. And we've learned some hard lessons over the 20 yeah. years uh, on, on this. Okay. Now, when it comes to the situation that we're all watching very carefully with trepidation, a certain amount of trepidation, the situation involving China, the United States, Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, Taiwan, and the response by China. What, what's going on here? What are the possibilities? And how are the international intelligence agencies working together on this one? So intelligence is inherently important here to give us a sense of uh, what might be happening in the background and give us sort of some insights into what the regime might be thinking rather than taking everything at face value here. And certainly one of the things that we can glean from intelligence is that much of what we're seeing is for domestic consumption. China had played up a substantial narrative in terms of China's retaliation if the United States moved unilaterally on a visit to Taiwan. And then in the end, that retaliation was a bit more muted than perhaps some of the Chinese population expected. Uh, and so then they stepped up the apparent retaliation in terms of sort of this much broader show. Uh, China could have, for instance, uh, had immediate military drills um, uh, while uh, Nancy Pelosi was still visiting. China could have engaged directly with US, US assets uh, in the region, for instance. So this is, I think, a calibrated response, but uh, a, a little sort of uh, trying to show to the Chinese domestic population that China is prepared to make good on its sort of rather uh, aggressive narrative towards uh, towards Taiwan. 
But it also puts China in a bind because with these large drills, China reveals a lot of its capabilities. These leave, for instance, vast electronic signatures, the signals intelligence agencies will be tracking. It gives us insights into Chinese uh, capabilities, into Chinese strategy, into the way they operate and coordinate, and thus also an opportunity to think about how we might disrupt this uh, if or when it becomes serious. But it's also an indication of what the most likely move by China will be if China decides to get tough on Taiwan, which is not likely an attack on Taiwan, which China can't likely currently carry out successfully, but rather a blockade of Taiwan, and then basically looking to the United States and to America to see who blinks first, whether the United States would try to uh, to, to break that, uh, that blockade. And so we've had these crises before, you might call this the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis, and people have climbed down from the barricades. And so I think everybody is uh, reasonably confident uh, that uh, this is um, initially here uh, primarily for domestic show. All right. Now, where, Christian, does Canada fit into the Western intelligence community? How much respect for the Trudeau government exists among Western allies? Do we get all the information that uh, they sh- share among each other? Or do they do they not are they not fully forthcoming with us because they don't necessarily trust us? I've heard this. There are always components of intelligence that countries will necessarily keep to themselves, and they will only share those elements that they are legally permitted to share uh, and that they feel is in their interest to share. But certainly Canada uh, is a standout in a couple of capabilities. That is to say, Canada does not have a foreign collection intelligence agency other than our signals intelligence agency, the communication security establishment. Um, And so it it is the one G7 democracy that does not have this particular capability. And so there is certainly a, a long-time perception by other uh, fellow G7 countries in particular, but also across the Five Eyes that uh, Canada may be free riding on some of the other capabilities. And we also know that Canada uh, has not sort of stepped up uh, in times of crisis, such as Ukraine, as for instance, uh, some allies uh, might have wished. At the same time, Canada does have some very important niche capabilities, both on signals intelligence side, but also in terms of uh, geostrategic intelligence. So for instance, the satellite capabilities that Canada um, had provided and some capabilities that Canada continues to provide uh, to Ukraine uh, in its fight uh, with Russia for Ukraine to understand uh, what Russian assets may be up to and uh, how Ukraine might be best positioned to make their own sovereign decisions about whether and how to engage uh, with Russian adversarial actions. Can you, in about 35 seconds, give me an idea if there's a scenario somewhere in the world that is of particular concern or, or interest to you? The challenge here is that intelligence is sort of our first line of defense. And so we need to understand those scenarios before they actually transpire in order to be able to prevent scenarios from arising uh, that we wouldn't want to arise. And so both uh, the adversarial actions uh, by Russia and the fact that we were not able to deter Russia um, and the inability to deter China from engaging in the in the rather confrontational actions that it is engaged in shows that there's much 
much more work to do in the signals that we need to send and that there's very heavy lifting to do in the intentions by our adversaries who are intent on undermining us politically, our democracy, our economies, our social fabric, uh, our militaries, our diplomatic efforts. And so um, this is uh, very heavy lifting at the beginning of the 21st century in terms of continuing to defend democracy. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.